Welcome to Eastlake <laughs> Online. We're so glad that you're watching this online or on replay or in the room today or whatever it is. Thanks for making us a part of your weekend and or weekly routine, however it is that it's playing out for you. If my voice sounds a bit harsh, I apologize. I was screaming at my television from about 1.30 yesterday till about 5 o'clock. And uh, I was yelling at the top of my lungs, I can't stand the Seahawks, I hate them, and I'll never watch a game for another nine months. Um, and uh, so there we are. And also, um, welcome to part two of a series that we're calling uh, Letters to Our Next President. <clears throat> and a quick confession, uh, my wife has been gone all week this week. So I've been doing overtime on dad duties, and I haven't been able to turn on the news once to like, or look at Twitter or anything. So if it comes across as like irrelevant, all this information, then I apologize completely. Um, well, I, I think we'll be all right. Um, we've all seen uh, open letters before. We've seen them published. Uh, we've seen people uh, write them on the internet or, or um, post things, and it's, it's a way of kind of communicating something to somebody, but hoping that other people will obviously see and and take to heart, and perhaps, um, perhaps when we do these things, the, the intentionality behind it is that there's, we would read it and be like, yes, it's for them, but it's also, there, hopefully there's something in it for us as well. And I know some of it can come across as like a virtue, signal thing, virtue signaling thing, and, and I understand that risk. Um, all I can ask is that uh, we're gonna, we, we said we're gonna do this like open letter to this president, hopefully you understand something that comes along with it perhaps, and, uh, and if it comes across as virtue signaling, that's fine, but I'll ask that you hear me out and then decide at the end what, kind of where we go. But um, in the Old Testament, it's interesting because we see um, as part of kind of the narrative of the people of Israel, which that is, by the way, what the Old Testament is. You have a Bible, and, the, and there's two major sections, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament is almost entirely about a people group. And it's about, it's about God and his relation to this people group, for sure. But historically, um, paradoxically, like wisdom-wise, all of these, these laws, these these are all to be interpreted within this viewpoint of a people. And because it's involved in, with the people, then you have government. And how do we kind of live together and facilitate life together and not beat each other up? And how do we have justice systems and, and all of these things? And so, um, whereas in the New Testament, you have more of here's who Jesus was, here's what his resurrection meant to a group of people trying to interpret what this means for them in their life. Um, so that, those are, that's very two different angles. There's not a lot of letters to authorities in the New Testament um, because they're, they're mostly talking to people who are being persecuted and are outside of the realm of authority. Whereas in the Old Testament, there's people who have authority. Uh, and so therefore, we have to adjust and talk about um, you know, what, what uh, handling authority might look like. And so as a result, there's a few instances of an open letter to authority figures in the Old Testament that I think are worth us taking time for as we um, are going into this period where we're about to inaugurate a new president and this transfer of power that has been in place for the, you know, since the beginning of, of this thing. And so um, we are going to look at three, we decided at the very beginning of this series, we're going to look at three of them. Last week, uh, we, we took a look at this idea of uh, this, uh, in Daniel, he's talking to a king, an open letter to a king, and, and talking about how, I need you to recognize that your authority has, has been given to you, it's been a gift, it's temporary, and you're going to be accountable. And I think that's an important piece for any president to kind of come, uh, come into, or any, any sort of uh, business leader or whatever, like any, any authority that you have, it's temporary, and, and, and you're accountable, and, and I think that, that's a good start, starting point. And then today we're going to be looking at the life uh, of a, uh, and the story of a life of a guy named Nehemiah who has his own book in the Old Testament. 
And the placement of Nehemiah is unique in that it shows up sort of in the middle of the Old Testament, but from a chronological standpoint, it's one of the last books uh, as uh, written for in the time frame for the Old Testament. Now, I know that doesn't make sense because normally we would say, we'll start with the beginning and then lead up to the end and then let, tell me where it ends off. And that's just not how the Old Testament's put together. Um, so we, we know the narrative is God chooses his people of Israel. They go into, uh, uh, they go into slavery and um, they get pulled out into the promised land. There's a bunch of stuff in there about how they kind of uh, operate as their own sort of people group now. And then they don't like follow up with their end of the bargain, their end of the covenant, their end of the contract with God. And he sends them off into exile in Babylon. In Babylon is actually where I think a lot of the Old Testament was actually physically written down, although it operated as sort of an oral tradition before that. Um, and they spend 70 years in exile. And that's where a lot of the prophets kind of come, come through. That's where we, we talked about the story of Nebuchadnezzar last week. And then after 70 years, uh, there's a process for them to be sent home and kind of rebuild from scratch, basically, when means to be kingdom. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are all about that rebuilding phase. And really that's the, that's the end. Then the, then the Old Testament goes quiet. Then everything goes quiet for about 400 years before we start getting Paul's letters to the churches and his epistles talking about this person named Jesus. So 400 year gap in between, but Nehemiah is tucked in there. It's an, it's an incredible story. And, and the reason I think it's relevant for us is if you've ever been under an authority figure or an authority that you didn't respect, you might like where we're going today. You might like to die. If it's been a while, maybe you work for somebody right now and and they're on a certain level that you just, like I'm sure Andrew and Lauren, they all, it's it's fine. But there's, there's there's a certain part of us sometimes where there's an authority figure where we're like, I work for you. I'm not gonna say something bad about you because you signed my paychecks, but I do not respect you. What is that? What did they do to earn that or not earn that from you? And how, maybe on the flip side, how do we be the type of people who, if we are given any sort of leadership, don't fall into that same trap, all right? So maybe it was your first job. Maybe it's your current job. I don't know where it's at, but maybe, maybe the scenario played out. You, you did what you were asked to do, but privately you disagreed with the decision and, and you, you, you chalked it up to another. And see, that's the problem with him. That's the problem with her. Um, because what you've seen over time, and not just once, but it develops into a pattern, is a discrepancy oftentimes behind what they say they're going to do and when what they actually do. We're going to stand for diversity. We're going to stand for honesty and integrity. We're going to stand for our word as our bond. And yet behind the scenes, there's something that's like, yeah, but that just, if you, if you, if you took an honest look at what, how it's played out, there's just a, a lack of integrity between those two things. And what they lack, maybe you've never put your thumb on it, but I, I, I want to illustrate it for today and maybe put some flesh to this idea for you. What they've lacked, though you've never put it in these words, is moral authority in your opinion. This idea of moral authority. You may not, and they have positional authority, but they do not have moral authority. And you've come across people who have moral authority before, and you've seen them. And what happens with people with it, let me just contrast it for you, is when people have more moral authority, I may not believe the things that they say or, or believe all of the things that they do, or I, I may not like line up with them or vote similar to them or have the same morals, but they do it in such a way, I believe they genuinely believe what they're doing is right. And so therefore, I have a respect for them. They have a moral authority, even if they don't even necessarily have positional authority over over me. 
This idea of moral authority. Maybe this hits close to uh, home for you because you grew up in a home where your dad or mom said and did one thing and then at behind the scenes at home when nobody was watching and you didn't have social media to kind of point it out to them. It was just you and it was just a diary or, like a, or just you, and your, you know, in your own brain being like, when I, when I grow up, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like so-and-so. I'm, I'm going to do whatever. We, we, we have this, like, like this very cliche modern construct of a dad who operates without moral authority or a parent who operates without moral authority. So we can kind of perhaps see this. I know I have to obey them until I'm 18, but I don't have to respect them as I do it, right? Now, what's interesting about this is we do expect uh, a couple of categorical uh, vocations to operate with a high level of this idea of moral authority. In fact, here, here's what we, we know just based on what we see from interpreting kind of news sources and news sites and reading the newspaper or reading the gossip going around on Twitter, Facebook, social media, whatever, is we expect our political and our religious leaders to operate with moral authority. We expect them to do this because when they don't, we are highly offended at this. Now, it's interesting. I'm in one of those positions. You expect a moral authority from me. You expect what I say to actually have some sort of transposition into how I live my life. Because if Kylie, who spoke a couple of weeks ago, ever came up and be like, it's, it's, he's like 50-50. Like what he says it like takes place like 50-50% of the time behind closed doors. There would be a lack of moral authority. There would be a lack of conviction for you to listen to anything that I have to say as a result uh, of that. The reason I know this is because we're personally offended by a political or religious leader's lack of moral authority. When prominent business leaders sacrifice their marriage or their family, it only makes news when the splitting up of the estate like hits a certain threshold, right? When they're like, oh, Bezos lost how many millions or billions of dollars? That's crazy. Can you believe he threw that away? Um, for the most part, we really like, kind of give a pass to every, every, a, a lot of people in other realms. Moral authority doesn't weigh as heavily in those areas. But when a political or religious leader sacrificed their marriage for the sake of whatever or, or, or do something uh, um, that they, 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 they say this, but they, they do this, and we look at them and we read it in the paper or we share it and we, th- we think, how dare they? How dare they? Now, we don't want the, in, in the response, a lot of times people will respond and be like, well, you wouldn't want the microscope pointed back on you and be like, yeah, yeah, but there's a difference. There's a difference. Why, why is there a difference? We voted them in. We trusted them with our votes. We cast a ballot, or maybe you came from a church where you voted a pastor, and that's not how it worked here. Um, I just started showing up at a high school, and people started showing up, and we just started talking. For the most part, um, for the most part, when it comes to like a voting thing, like, like, because I voted for you, you kind of owe me a little bit. So therefore, I need moral authority in your life, or I feel like I got ripped off in some way. We want there to be an alignment between what they say and what they do, and partly because we have input into that process, which also lends us to be partly cynical or critical of the process. We can think we've given up because we've been burnt too many times. I just don't trust anybody in that system. I don't trust any religious leader. I don't trust any politician, right? It's, it's not like a, a hot take to be like, I, just, I think all politicians are shady. Everybody's like... Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's probably right, right? We, we think of these things. One of the things we would say then, perhaps in our let, open letter to our president, is that you're going to have the positional authority for sure. 
Like, I, I, I understand. I've gotten to that, pro, you, that spot where um, you get to say and do things. You're, you're the most powerful person in, in, the, in, in the modern free world or whatever. But whether I voted for you or not, I want there and you want there and we want there to be an alignment between what you've claimed to be during this entire election season and who you are once you get the nuclear football. It's all I'm asking. Even if we disagree on how this money should be spent or who should get this or what we should do here or whatever, if there was, if there was alignment, political alignment between what you said you were going to do and what you actually then carried out to doing, then I would look at you and say, I disagree with you. I still don't vote like you, but my gosh, there's moral authority there and I can actually respect that. The power of moral authority described perhaps looks something like this. How many times at the end of a presidential term? perhaps the current term notwithstanding, but have you thought, um, I didn't vote for you. I probably still wouldn't vote for you. I didn't agree with all of your policies, but there was a level of respect for the office that I think somehow changed you, and I can still respect your presidential leadership way. That is what we would call and define as moral authority. For some, not all, watching this um, is there's a, a, a pushback a little bit. Uh, perhaps a part, maybe even a large part of the reason you have disdain for our current president because, is because of a lack of moral authority. And I, I recognize we're coming from a broad spectrum. I'm not trying to take positions on here. I'm not trying to do things. But for a lot of people, you've been able to be like, I don't like him. And you would say, why? And, and by the way, it happens every four, eight years. I don't like him. I don't like him. I don't like him. Right? Okay. But why don't you like him? Because of your perceived lack of moral authority in this area. And I'm not here to take a position. I'm just trying to point out a prominent factor. And you would say it's not perceived uh, moral, lack of moral authority. It is actual. That's fine. Whatever. Moral authority isn't limited to these two categories, of course, being political and religious. It's just especially prominent. This goes to the heart of what we want in our coaches. This is what it means to be a, a good teacher, who we consider to be good parents, etc., etc. This is what we want in our leadership. And it's on display for us in a story in the Bible called in Nehemiah about his positional leadership that transposed all the way over into his moral authority. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today. There's going to be quite a few texts uh, that we're going to be walking through. I'll try and go slow. Um, if I do go too fast for you, if you are watching this on the app, you can scroll down and see kind of the notes. I, I included a big passage of this, or um, uh, later on you can look up Nehemiah 5 on Google and figure it out. But all right. Uh, Nehemiah 5, again, they've returned from exile. They're starting to pick up the pieces. This is in about 444 BC. We know this because of you know, common secular history knowledge. Uh, king Artaxerxes was the king of Persia at the time, and his methodology, he came in after Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, went and brought all the smartest and the brightest back into him. Uh, Artaxerxes said, listen, we're going to have a lot more freedom. We're going to have a lot more... Um, uh, you get to go back to your areas. Now, you're not free. Uh, you're still going to pay taxes to me, and I'm still king, uh, but I'm not going to contain you in this one area. It's just a, tra- it's just a different way of doing things for him. Um, and it says, it shows up in the first few chapters of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah was the official, this is his, his job description, he is the official wine taster, which sounds like a job that was not at any college fair that I went to growing up, because pretty sure I would have probably looked at that one a little bit more in depth. But um, official wine taster, and by the way, if anybody's looking for one of those, even today, uh, I have an application I would love to submit. Anyway, this is, 
this is his, and this was, uh, it doesn't sound maybe like all that fancy, but this was a big deal. This was access to the king that almost nobody else had. And the only way you had this access is because you're so loyal and trustworthy. And it wasn't, he wasn't telling him if the wine was good or not, right? Because that's interesting. He was telling him if it was safe or not. It's, if, is this safe to drink? As a king, uh, in, in those days, you can imagine there were probably a lot of ki- people who um, didn't like you and or wanted you dead. And so therefore, here's this gift of wine. And is it poisoned or not? I need, bring me my cupbearer, and you're going to taste this and tell me if, if this is going to kill you or not. So um, he likes him, but he also is like, if somebody has to die, better you than me. So there's, there's some of that going on in there as well. Just keep that in mind. Um, he, at some point, had developed such a strong relationship with this uh, king, which you can imagine being in those, like, that intimate of a scenario or whatever, but that as this king is sending people back to their homelands post-Babylon invasion, right, and this new kingdom is being set up, he comes to Nehemiah and perhaps hears about his background and how, you know, Babylon had invaded Jerusalem and had, they'd burned everything down and they took every, you know, they took some of us, not all of us, they took some of us uh, back here and my, my homeland is basically a wasteland. I mean, there's no, there's no temple anymore. There's no, there's not even a wall. I mean, anytime we have anything get, that gets up and going, um, uh, that's worth anything. We get these outside invaders that come in and just take everything that we build. And so there's no real incentive to start because there's no protection. And the king hears this and at some point says, well, why don't you go back? Like, why don't you, why don't you as, as well make this journey back to your homeland and, and start something new there and then pay taxes in this way? And Nehemiah's response is, is one of gratefulness, obviously, but he's, he says basically, I don't just want to go back. With your permission and basically with your borrowed authority, I'd like to go help rebuild it. We will start with a wall. That was his big thing. He had a specific agenda and it was this. We are going to rebuild a wall. And the second line of things that we are going to make Mexico pay for it, which the king was like, who's Mexico? I have no idea. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Bad joke too, but whatever. Um, he says, I- I'm going to go back. We're going to build this wall because this wall is going to provide the security to be able to incentivize people to kind of take their life back a little bit and start over in a new way. If they know that what we are building is relatively safe, then perhaps we'll actually sink our teeth into this one more time. So he goes back. He gets um, letters and money and authority. He is, is, uh, he's got the positional authority given to him, a letter that the, the, he is supposed to read in front of the whole city, being like, my name is Nebuchadnezzar. I was the cupbearer of the king. He's sending me back with all of these things, and I'm, I'm now the governor. I'm the one that reports to him about all of the things going on here. So he's got the positional authority in this way. He's been taken away. This is an interesting part of it. He's, he was taken away um, as, as part of the group of the best and the brightest, which if you got left behind because you weren't smart enough, imagine your attitude towards the, the people who got taken away, and then they try and come back, and you're like, we're different. We clearly are different, right? Um, so there's going to be some bitterness probably going on. So he, as he comes in, he's got this letters like, now I'm in charge. There's going to be some skepticism here, and rightfully so. The left behinds got kind of taken over, and, then, and now this guy's back, and he's smarter than us and all of these things. When he arrived, the economy is in shambles. External money lenders had set exorbitant interest rates, and default rates were high, meaning this. 
it seems like there had been previous attempts to rebuild the city. And like I said, um, failure a lot of times was involved, both natural failure based on droughts and famines, but also just external warfare or whatever. Um, But it was hard to get started and you need capital to be able to start something. I got to buy the the plow to be able to plow the field so that I can raise the harvest and go do the things. And where am I going to get the money to do this? And they had gone to external outside of their borders to try and go get money. And those rates, because they're dealing with foreigners and there's no kind of, you know, there's inherent risk in there, obviously, but also you can take advantage of them in that way. Um, the market kind of lend itself to be really highly priced and almost impossible to survive in this. Nehemiah discovered over time that there had been so much default taking place that many of the people who had taken these loans and then, and then defaulted um, had, had gone into what they called uh, economic slavery, which is not the same slavery that we dealt with in, in uh, whatever. It's, it was more like indentured servitude. When, I, when, when you loan money to me and I can't repay you, in this time and day and age, um, and, and I go, I'm so sorry. It's not a matter of, all right, well, go find other work and get me the money when you can. It's a, okay, you're going to then work for me for a set amount of years to be able to pay this off. So it's, an, it's not employees because I'm not doing this. I'm paying off a debt to you, and I don't have an option. There's no marketplace of options for me to go explore other options to be able to pay you back. I just, I work for you. This is how this works in this way. And this is taking place, and Nehemiah comes back, and he notices a, a couple of things. Um, and let, let's dive into the text, and it, it'll come out in this way. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, the charges were this. Um, outsiders, we worked for outsiders, and then we become indentured servitudes for them. And even when we paid them off, we have these religious elites, or we have these elites in, within our own borders, the money, people who have money here are also doing this to us. People who are of our own kin are taking advantage of us, and we cannot repay our debts, and the scenarios are too risky that we, we, we find ourselves now in debt to people who are related to us. And we have this problem. So we heard this out. When I heard this outcry, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. This is Nehemiah talking right in the first person. And then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. It's gross enough that we live in an economic system where our people are forced to go borrow from foreigners. But even when we try and keep it at home and lend to our external family members, non-immediate family members, and you're, you're charging them interest, even if you couch it as, well, it's not as bad as what we're being taken advantage of outside of this. Yes, but it's still bad. You're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Verse eight, as far as possible, we... We have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. In other words, he's been here for a, a non-specified at this point length of time. And during this time, he, he and the leadership have done their part to pay off debts to foreign lenders so that our people, our people would be free to do this. Now, the problem with this is they are not remaining free. They keep going back to you. As far as people, we brought our back, our fellow Jews who were sold to Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. We, we, we're, we're, doing, we're paying off all of these debts and we're trying to make something for ourselves again and, and you lead us back. You're, you're, you're leading us back into this. We're solving it on one end and we're getting backdoored over here. 
We're getting hosed in this process. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, I know this is written from Nehemiah's perspective, and he's probably jaded and biased, but he, he feels like I really got him here. Like, they don't even know how to justify this inexcusable behavior, so they just kept their mouths shut in, these, in this way. I call this the care to comment moments, right? This is the idea of, um, hey, we've been doing all this over here, and, and you're coming back here, and, and you're going against everything that we're trying to do. Care to comment? right? Hey, Pete Carroll, um, we, we played really well for seven games. And then all of a sudden we look like crap for seven games, eight games, nine games, 10 games. It's the playoffs. Five teams looked ready. One team didn't care to comment, right? That's what's going on here. It's a care to comment moment. So I continued. That's, that wasn't even in the notes. I just got in there. Just, it slipped in there. Yeah, it's good. All right. Verse nine. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. I'm teaching them a lesson here. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? In other words, we are the laughing stock of other countries. We started paying them off, and they, they probably got their money and, find, and, and looked at this, and, and, then, and then they watched as our own people consumed themselves, and they're like, they can't even handle themselves. We have a system of debt and repayment that is so burdensome and, and you've been selling it as a lifeline. The issue, if you've read in the, in the, you know, in the last 10, 15 years of these, this idea of payday loans, and we see these stores and we see these commercials, and we're like, we can get you a loan through payday. And then you read the fine print, and it's like 25, 30, I mean, it's an exorbitant percent. And all of a sudden you realize these people just don't even understand what they're signing up for when they do this. And so there's been a lot of lawsuits that have recently come into play about going against these payday loan sharks. I mean, like that's, you're just taking advantage of, of people's inability to connect the dots or read the fine print or whatever. You cannot do this in this way. This is not appropriate. I and my brothers, and so in other words, I'm saying that is, it's a modern day problem, but it's also, it's been a problem for a long time. Verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let's, let us stop charging interest. In other words, I'm not just asking the wealthy people to do something, to start something different. I too, me and my men have been involved in this lending process. Let us, this very inclusive, I'm not asking you to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Let us stop charging interest. I understand that loans are necessary, right? People need capital to kind of get things going. You got to be able to buy the seeds, to be able to plant, and you know, where's that money going to come from? I understand. We're going to loan the, the loan structure. I'm not asking for a handout, but let's commit to not taking unnecessary advantage of people, and we do not want to be dependent on foreign loans. Verse 11 Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest that you're charging them 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. And this, uh, by the way, wasn't from, all right, guys, come on today. From here on out, we're going to, this was a, a matter of, I don't know what you have right now, but from, from starting it from, I want you to do this immediately. I don't want you to go, all right, we're going to make a conviction. You have, you've benefited from this. I want you to do a big one-time give back and then not do this in the future. Verse 12, this is their response. Finally, they get a word in edgewise. Nehemiah has been berating them, right? Parading around his own justification for this and his own standards of living and whatever. Verse 12 says this. This is their response. We will give it back, they said. This is how you know it's a Bible story, right? 
This is how you know it's not a real story. And this is usually the part where I usually change the words of a verse just to make sure you guys are still awake a little bit. Like, I'll be like, oh, yeah, and then Jesus said, you're right, let's stone her for what she's done, right? And I'll be like, ah, you got to read your Bible more, right? It feels like I've done this in this moment. They heard this. They, they go, yeah, I'll, you know, whatever. Okay, fine. And, and, and when he says, you know, when it's not that we're not going to do this anymore, we're going to do a massive one-time thing, the reversal of fortunes in this way. And they said, we will give it back. And they go on. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as your say. And if your immediate response is to scoff at this, like you're not alone. If your immediate response to this sort of response is to not believe it's actually going to happen or that it didn't happen in this way or that Nehemiah is just painting a better picture than what actually took place. This is, a, uh, this is kind of like a, a memoir of reality, how it's kind of jaded and biased in a certain way. Or... If your response is to see this and be like, I bet the next verse is that they didn't do it. The reason that you think like that is because we've heard people say things similar to this and then go on and not do it, right? I mean, this summer, as a result of many of the marches and protests, and probably due to a lot more of considerable amount of public pressure, we heard a lot of large companies say, well, they're going to be more intentional about diversity with the workplace, and what was the knee-jerk reaction of the minority community? Yeah, we'll see, right? Why is that being so programmed into us, to read a story like this and be like, I mean, that's just not reality, though. They're not going to actually do this in this way, right? Verse 12, then, this is Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah, then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. They said this, and Nehemiah's like, great, I'm going to call you on it right now. Bring in the priests. Here's the Bible. We're going to put your hand on the Bible. Lift up your right hand, left hand, whatever. Uh, And and when when you have to take an oath to do what you promised, what does that say about you, right? Just for that. Anyways, verse 13, I also, then he goes into like this, like guerrilla theater almost. He's, verse 13 says, I also shook out the folds of my robe, which, why is he wearing a robe? That's maybe part of the problem. Anyways, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So, so, much, so, so, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. This is his way of, I don't know, throwing something on the ground and stepping on it and be like, this, may this sort of thing happen to the same person who says this thing, makes an oath to God, and then does not follow through on this. In other words, you can fool me, you can fool everybody else, but I'm asking God to come after you, so be it, if you happen to dot, 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 right? All right. Verse 13, at this, the whole assembly said, amen, and they praised the Lord. They said, so be it, let's make it true, let's put a stamp on it, and they praised the Lord, and the people did, and the people did as they had promised. I almost breezed by that, but that's a significant deal. And the people did as they had promised. Imagine somebody sitting in the seat of the president, sitting down with some of the decision makers of all of like the Fortune 500 companies who are complicit with everything that you think is wrong in this country. And that varies widely, right? Depending on who you voted for and what background you have. I get it. I understand. I'm just saying, whatever's wrong with all of the, it's free speech, it's this, I, I get it. If they sat down with everybody in the, same, in, the, in the uptown theater, in this room right here, with no lawyers involved and no cameras and no C-SPAN and no news and whatever, and simply looked at everybody, laid out the facts and said, all right, let's let everybody. Knock it off, everybody. 
Just knock it off. Our response would be, that would never work. I know. And yet somehow, Nehemiah, at least in his version of the story, and I know that that could be biased. I understand he wrote it himself, and and there's always, I, I get it, I understand. But in his version of the story, it evokes a different response. They say it, they swear on it, and then it says that they actually did it. The fact that we look at it and think that it may actually be possible, even though you might say it just doesn't sound, it's very unlikely. I know, but if there's a sliver of hope, if there's a sliver of possibility, what about the fact that you want this to be true? What about the fact that, as I said, the president sits down with people and just goes, all right, stop it with the news. Stop it with the angle. Stop it with the virtue signaling. Stop it with everything. Nobody post anything about this. Look at me in the eye and just be like, guys, knock it off. And then all of them, Democrats and Republicans and everybody involved go, all right, all right, we're in. And we go, that could never happen. You're right, but there's something in us that wants it to happen, right? We're like, good grief. How incredible would that be? What then does that say about Nehemiah in that, in that moment? The reason that it worked for Nehemiah is because of what we discover in the verses that follow, and it comes back to that moral authority piece that I talked about at the very beginning. Listen to this, verse 14. This is where it gets really good. Don't fall asleep on me yet. Moreover, don't flip over and shop on Amazon if you're watching this online. Wait, just, it'll, it'll still be there, I promise. Verse 14, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years. Now we're getting the picture I mentioned earlier. He, he doesn't give a time frame. Now we know the time frame. What he's saying is, I've been in this role for 12 years. And in those 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. For 12 years, which illustrates a pattern, not just a one-time thing. He didn't take what was rightfully his, right? <clears throat> what I had coming to me, I did not take because of the condition of the people. I looked at the situations. I looked at the circumstances surrounding this. And I decided, you know what? It would be better for me not to take everything that I could in this moment. I'm not prescribing something to you, by the way, that I've not been unwilling to do myself. And I'm not saying, let's start doing this together in this moment, I've been leading by example for a long period of time, probably mostly when nobody's been watching. And nobody in that moment starts up and be like, well, I mean, nobody, they just stand there and they listen because they know this guy has been doing this and living this way. And he's got this history of living generously in this way and not taking advantage of people. So when he says it, I actually kind of believe that he believes that and wants that. This week, I, I, I lied to you earlier. I did watch the news this week. This week, and I was on Twitter, sorry. Um, I saw a picture going around on Twitter of uh, after the raid on the Capitol, which, whoa. Anyways, I saw a picture of a congressman sweeping up garbage uh, on there, and it got a lot of traction on Twitter. People were sharing it, and, and um, there was something in it that felt incredibly opportunistic to me. And that may be just because I'm so cynical about the whole thing, right? Or I watch too much Veep, or something like that. Um, but one-time actions of things where the camera is just right and the lighting is just right, and they want to get credit for something, I'm always like. 
I mean, thanks. Do you want a gold star? I don't, I don't know what you want from me. Now, if there comes out stories or backgrounds of this person doing incredible things for a long period of time, and he's always been a supportive, you know, whatever sort of representative or senator, I can't even remember his position, then that rings a little differently to me. If, if people come out surrounding the story and be like, that's just the kind of person that he is, then I think, all right, that's great. When I hear about Jimmy Carter's work with like Habitat for Humanity, and the fact that he was still teaching kids Sunday school, or uh, yeah, kids, I think it was kids Sunday school, Sunday school in general, in his church in Plains, Georgia, Maranatha Baptist Church, up until July of this year, and because of the pandemic, he finally had to stop, and he's been doing it ever since. When I hear about that kind of stuff, I, I think he didn't pick up a hammer for Habitat for Humanity because there was a camera person around. He'd been doing it for a while. So when that pri- pr- kind of praise is bestowed on somebody, you look at it and you think, yes. That appears to be well-deserved. There appears to be a level of moral authority in there. How do you argue with something like that? You don't, because that's moral authority. When you've been doing something for 12 years, and in this kind of a small community, by the way, that Nehemiah goes back to, right? It's small enough. Everybody sees, everybody knows everything about everybody. It was not big. It's, it, it be, you know, it's, it's, it's smaller than the Tri-Cities. I mean, everybody feels like everybody knows everybody's business anyways. I, imagine a town 10, 15, 100 times smaller than that. They know Nehemiah has not taken the food that he rightly deserved, has not claimed the authority. And if we want to know where he's at, he's probably swinging a hammer, rebuilding a wall, because when he came back, he said, we are going to rebuild a wall. That's what I'm passionate mostly about. That's what I care about the most. And if we want to know where we can find him, he's probably at the wall because that's where he always is. Verse 15, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, he continues his thing. Those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden. Just a reminder, you had governors before this. You had people of authority. They placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land at all. And that's a big deal in this day and age, as it is in our day and age. Property ownership is a huge deal. Property ownership for them was everything. Nehemiah said, I wanted to be so far beyond reproach that when I say the priority is the wall, you do not have to second guess what my hidden agenda is. And he concludes this all, this writing, this recapping of this, by the way, with this verse 19. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. There was so much alignment between what he said and what he did that they actually considered doing what he had asked them to do. Because for 12 years, they knew this is what he's been about. I really genuinely think he really wants to build this wall and is willing to sacrifice whatever. They knew if they wanted to find him, he was probably out there with a hammer. His influence drove them to do something they never would have imagined themselves doing, even if it were forced on them legally. Because even if it was forced on them legally, they would discover loopholes. They would find ways to kind of do it, but not actually do it, right? It was his moral authority that drove them to respond in this way. And listen to me. That's the kind of authority you want to have, Dad, That's the kind of authority you want to have, mom. 
That's the kind of authority that you want to have in the marketplace. That's what you want in the marketplace. That's what you want in the classroom. It's what we want in the educational system. A moral authority that when the demands are there, you go, listen, I may not agree with it, but I genuinely think they actually believe this and have made the commitments and have a pattern, a long-term pattern of actually going in this direction. That's what we want in our president and really at all levels of local government. It's what we want in our pastors and that's what our people want in us. That's what your people want in you, your people, your family, your kids, your husband, your spouse, your wife. That's what they want in you too. And is it easy? It's absolutely not easy. In fact, Louis Fisher uh, has a famous quote saying this, history is the chronicle of divorces between creed and deed. History is the chronicle of divorces between creed and deed. There is a long-term pattern of people not, not doing this, which is why when we run into moral authority, we're so attracted to it. So why can't we be the type of people who lead in this way? And why can we not expect a president? If I could write a letter to the next president, I would say, hey, there's a degree of moral authority that I would like you to have, even if I didn't vote for you. I would like you to exercise in this way. And if you do that, I'm going to respect the decisions that you made even when I don't agree with them. 